Well, good morning. And Merry Christmas. Pastor Nate, did you even say Merry Christmas yet? Merry Christmas. Um, so if you have your Bibles, make your way to the book of Titus. Uh, we are beginning our new Christmas series uh, this morning. And the, the title that we have selected for our Christmas series is Christmas Clarity. And as Pastor Todd pointed out this morning in the first service, you may be thinking, Christmas, you may be thinking Luke 1, Matthew 1, even John 1, and we're, we're turning to Titus, and it was my idea, and Todd's making fun of it, so I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, but we are, we are looking at Titus uh, this morning and for the next few weeks, and we're focusing on this idea of Christmas clarity, and, um, and how, particularly this year, uh, we probably need Christmas clarity maybe more than ever. And so, uh, if, you're, if you've made your way to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, today we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, verse 11, but I'm going to read the passage that we'll, we will be looking at for the next few weeks. So, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, as you make your way there, please stand in honor of reading God's perfect and precious word. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who were zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, we are ever so thankful for reports of people coming to faith in Christ from around the globe. It reminds us of our faith and the grace that we experience and the grace we experience daily. And and Father, we recognize that we are transformed, we are changed by the power of Your Word, so I pray that Your Word would move mightily in our hearts and our minds this morning. Lord, let Your Word do what Your Word do, which is penetrates our hearts and sharpen us and shape us for Your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there have been only a, a few, probably less than a handful of times in my life where something appeared... And I realized that uh, at that moment, everything changed. Everything changed. Um, the, one, of the, one of the ones that always jumped to the forefront of my mind when I began to think about these things happened on December 29th, almost 19 years ago. Uh, that is uh, the day I got married to my lovely wife, Kathy. And if, if you've been to a wedding or if you partook in a wedding. If you're married, you may kind of remember the process. It was December 29th, so we had a Christmas wedding. We had a Christmas tree. It was, it was candlelit. There, there was the only light that was in the, whole, in the whole church, and it was kind of a smaller church that we got married in, and so it was, it was pretty dark, and uh, it had, the church had back doors, kind of like we do here at Ashland, and, and you guys know as the wedding procession makes their way forward, right before the bride steps out, they shut the doors, right? You guys know that, know how it works. And I'm standing there waiting, sweaty palms. I mean, I'm getting married too, right? It's not just Kathy getting married. And all of a sudden, the doors fly open. And, and there is my, my bride. 
right? In this beautiful wedding dress. And I just know everything's changed, right? Everything has just changed. She makes her way forward in all her kind of bridal gloriousness, and indescribably, she's walking towards me, right? I'm going to be her husband. I knew at that moment that that, I had seen Kathy before, clearly. This is the first time I'd seen her as my bride. And and tears came, and my dad's hand comes across my, you know, my dad's strong, he was a diesel mechanic, so his strong hand comes across and grabs my shoulder. Everything changed. Then, almost two years to the day, or sorry, one year to the day, two weeks before our first anniversary, something else appeared that changed my life forever. It was our first son, Jonathan. Kathy and I decided, I guess we're not going to waste any time, so we're going to have our first kid two weeks before our first anniversary. Um, but I can remember um, Kathy woke me up on a Sunday morning and said, my, it's time, I'm having contractions, so... Um, by the time we get to you know, five minutes apart, we're driving to the hospital, um, and then you all know how it goes. You know, through the through the sweat and the effort and the determination of my wife, all of a sudden there's life, and I'm holding this brand new baby. And what, right? A love that I'd never experienced before. Nate and I were talking about this recently. A love that you never experienced before is just all of a sudden in your heart. And my dad walks into the room again, and, and all of a sudden tears flow because all of a sudden I have appreciation for him like I've never had before. Because I'm a father, like he's my father. And, and, and everything at that point, the appearing to my first son, I knew everything changed. Everything was going to be different. And so, there are times in our lives where where these things can happen, where something appears and you know that everything has changed. Now, you may be saying, Adam, what does your your marriage or what does the appearance of your first son have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with Titus today? Well, to to really kind of answer that question, we have to go back a little. Uh, Paul is writing to Titus and he proclaims this truth, for the grace of God has appeared. He's writing to Titus. Titus is is pastoring a church and the church is kind of struggling with with influences from the outside. People trying to push legalism or people trying to push paganism. And and Paul is writing to him to encourage him to, to, to maintain and teach the purity and the righteousness of the church. And he's He's encouraging older men to to live self-controlled lives and lead the younger men in that and encouraging the older women to do the same. And it all begins to kind of hinge on this idea that grace has appeared. To really understand why this is significant, like I said, we, we need to probably take a few steps back. You see, because, yes, Paul writes here, grace has appeared. But that doesn't mean that there has been no grace up until now. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been grace all throughout the story of the Bible. We see it from the very beginning. I mean, the fact that God creates Adam and Eve in His own image and tells them to go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it's an act of grace. He didn't have to. But out of His love, He does. 
especially knowing what's coming. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows what's coming. And so out of grace, He creates Adam and Eve and He places them in the Garden of Eden and He gives them a task to tend and keep this garden. But also in the middle of this garden is is a tree that God says, don't eat of this tree. God tells Adam and Eve, look, I'm enough for you. You don't need more than me. Well, Adam and Eve, their faith fails them. And they begin to believe the lie of a serpent who says, is God really enough? Is His Word really true? And so they take from the tree the knowledge of good and evil and they eat, hoping to be like God, which was the promise of the serpent. Ironically, disregarding the fact that they've already been created in His image. And Adam and Eve sinned. They chose something else rather than God. And so, God in His goodness cast them out of the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, there is access to the tree, also to the tree of life. If they were to eat of that, they could live forever. And God did not want them to live forever in a state where they were rebelling against their Creator. So He cast them out. And with the casting out comes curses. Man's work is cursed. The ground is cursed. The, the woman giving birth is now going to have child or going to have pains in childbirth. And all of a sudden, it begins to look pretty dark. What started out as, a, as something that seems glorious and good and right, all of a sudden begins to look very dark. But in this darkness, in this moment of darkness, a light begins to flicker. And this light that flickers is a promise. It's something that, that God says in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of kind of giving His curses, He leaves this promise. He says this, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a promise. The woman shall bear a child, And that child will bring an end to the lies and to the brokenness and to the dysfunction and the destruction that the the serpent weaves. And we continue to read the biblical narrative and we begin to see kind of that flickering light begin to grow a little brighter. We get to to Abraham. We see the the promise that Abraham's offspring are going to bless the nations. And his offspring is going to be as many as the stars of the heavens or the sand on the seashore. That God's people are going to have a, a specific land. And finally, Isaac is born to Abraham. And we begin to hearken back. This, is this the seed? Is this the one? Is this the one that's promised? But we learn that that's not the case. It's not the one. And Jacob, is he the one? No. Not Jacob. Not even any of Jacob's children. And so the first book of the Bible closes and we're kind of left wondering, what about this promise? Where did it go? And then we open the book of Exodus and we realize that God's people have been in bondage for 400 years, but there's also a child that's mentioned. And this child is, is, is miraculously protected after his birth. And this child begins to grow in the house of Pharaoh having Pharaoh as his adoptive grandfather. 
And all of a sudden, this, this child begins to, after some time, begins to come back and lead his people out of bondage. And again, you hear the promise. Isn't this the one? But as we continue reading, what happens? We know that Abraham, or sorry, that Moses' faith begins to fail him. So much so that he's not even allowed to enter into the promised land that was promised to Abraham. And so we walk through this kind of detailed story through the Pentateuch, and we finally we get to the book of Judges, and, and some judges have to continually be, God has to continually raise up judges to rescue the people of Israel, but it gets so bad that by the time we get to the end of Judges, the Bible just says everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So, so much people had turned their back on God. But on top of that story is still the promise. It's still there. And finally we get to the historical books and the Israelites begin to look around at their pagan neighbors and say things like, well, God, we want a king like our neighbors. And God said, well, that's not a good idea. I'm your king. And the people say, we don't care. We want a king. So they go and they pick a tall very good-looking man. In other words, everything that I'm not, right? Tall and good-looking. And they said, we're going to make him king. And maybe you think to yourself, well, could this be the promised one? Well, no, we realize that Saul is not the promised one. But while Saul is king, someone else appears. A young boy. A young boy who's not afraid to face a giant who is mocking God and God's people with just a slingshot and a few rocks. And, and the Bible begins to talk about this young boy named David oh, he, as the anointed one. And, and all of a sudden, he becomes king. And, and, and his kingdom begins to flourish and the Israelite people begin to flourish. And you think back to the promise and you're like, is this the one? But we continue to read. And we realize David's not the one. Because like Adam and Eve, his faith fails him. And he picks forbidden fruit, this time in the form of Bathsheba. Murdering her husband. Well, that can't be the one. That seems to only perpetuate the lies and the deceit of Satan. We need something else. And Solomon comes and realizes it's not Solomon either. But the kingdom of Israel continues to grow, but by the time Solomon dies, the kingdom begins to fall apart. A series of poor kings, kings who are rebellious against God, come and the kingdom is divided. And, it, and the people continue to rebel against God. And God, in His graciousness, continues to send prophets, reminding them of the promise, reminding them to return, reminding them to come to Him. And all the while, they ignore it. They ignore it, and finally God sends judgment upon them. And the judgment that comes is in the form of other nations bringing judgment upon them. Assyrians, Babylonians, eventually Persians all come. And Israelites are, are, are taken away into captivity. And now they're living under the thumb of, of other kingdoms. But all the while, while this is going on, prophets are coming and reminding them. And, and, and some of the things that these prophets say harken back and point to that promise. We begin to see a, a, 
we begin to see that light become brighter and brighter and brighter. So much so that Isaiah talks about this one who's going to be born of a woman. Who, 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 who is the... Who, who is God? Whose kingdom shall not end? And so this picture begins to come a little bit more clear. But even in captivity, God's still graciously working. And He begins to work and God's people are allowed to return to their homeland and they begin to kind of build the walls upon the rubble, that the, the walls that were torn down before. And so they're allowed to kind of begin to rebuild this kingdom. But as we're reading, it never kind of feels the same. And the people begin to lose heart yet again. Again, God sends prophets. But like I said, it just never kind of feels the same. But finally, the last prophet speaks and reminds the people of the coming day of the Lord. And he closes by saying this day is going to come and the father's hearts are going to be turned towards their children and the children's hearts are going to be turned towards their father. Then, 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. No more prophets. No more thus saith the Lord's. Just silence. But the promise is still there. The promise is still there. And so finally, when we open our New Testaments, and we see God's people yet again under the thumb of another kingdom, this time the Roman Empire. And they're struggling with their identity. And they haven't really heard from God in 400 years. Their religion has become distorted by their own religious leaders. And they're being burdened with law upon law. And maybe in this attempt to try to remain unique from the people that they're living under, but all the while, silence. What about the promise? Can you not hear the questions in the hearts of the Israelites? What about the doubts? Does it even matter anymore? How long do we have to wait? Then God speaks. God speaks. Not to a king, not to a religious leader, but to a woman, a young woman, a virgin. And he says this in the first chapter of Luke. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, old favor one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the same and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, the one who saves. And He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Wait, the promised one. He's of David. He's of Jacob. He's of Abraham. He's of Adam and Eve. This kingdom, this is the kingdom, the one that has no end, that can reverse the curse 
that we saw in Genesis. But her, but her betrothed, Joseph, begins to question, now wait a minute, she's supposed to be a virgin and she's with child? So God speaks to Joseph through an angel. It says, but as Joseph was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which was conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What a glorious way to break the silence. What a glorious way to cut through the doubt, the wonder, the longing. One is coming. The Son of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And so nine months or so later, Joseph is leading Mary back to his hometown of Bethlehem to participate in a census. Mary starts having contractions. And so... Kind of put, picture the story in your mind. You have, you have a young husband leading a, a young woman who he's trying to take back and, and to be obedient to the government, to, to be counted in the census, and she, she is very, very with child. And she starts to have contractions. So you can kind of, I can put myself in Joseph's shoes. I mean, it's hard enough just driving your wife to the hospital, hoping I'm going to get there, much less trying to get her on horseback, a donkey, a camel. I don't know, right? And so he's trying to get her there. And she's having contractions, so he gets her there. And he's just doing the best he can to, to find a place for his bride to give birth. So he finds a place where they typically keep animals at night, cleans up the best he can. And there, in backwood, podunk, Bethlehem, in the stable, the grace of God appears. Jesus is born. Glory to God. You see, that's the truth of Christmas. Do you see it? Do you see it? A promise that had its genesis in Genesis comes to fruition in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Adam, why wait so long? God made this promise thousands of years before. Why wait so long? Well, the Bible tells us in Galatians. Galatians 4 and 4 and following. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God in His perfect timing sent Jesus Christ, and grace has appeared, is what Paul tells Titus here. Grace has appeared. The entire program of redemption is rooted in the grace of God, His free favor and spontaneous merit and action towards us needy sinners. It has appeared. Now, as I mentioned, we've seen God's grace before, but this time it appears. What, is, what does Paul mean by appears here? Well, it's actually kind of the word we get our, our, our word epiphany from. This is why the church, if you're, 
if you've ever been part of a liturgical church, after Christmas, they participate in what's known as Epiphany, the season of Epiphany. Well, Epiphany just means to become visible, to make an appearance. And here, as Paul is using it, it, convey, it conveys the image of grace suddenly breaking in to our moral darkness like the sun breaking the horizon. Grace has appeared. The grace of God. Now, he's not just talking about the attribute of God. God, from before the foundations of the world into eternity, He is existent as a God of grace. But it's not just talking about this attribute of grace. Paul is specifically te- talking about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not only God incarnate, but He, he is also grace incarnate. The writer of Hebrews tells us in the first chapter, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. As God is gracious in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus is grace. He became, He came, and He took on flesh, as John tells us in the first chapter of John. He says, we have seen Him, and we have beheld His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then John, writing his first letter, his first epistle, he makes sure that he, that he points out that Jesus is a historical, real person. In the, first, in, in the first chapter of 1 John, John writes, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which, which we have seen, which we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is making it clear that we, we have seen Him. We have heard Him. We have touched Him. He is a real historical person. And this real historical person, Jesus, whose name means God saves, is, is, is a real person. And He is the embodiment of the grace of God. And at Christmas, in a stable, grace appeared. The grace of God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the person of Jesus Christ that all of redemptive history is solidified. All of redemptive history is solidified in the person of Jesus Christ. The answer to the curse of the fall and the sin of Adam and Eve is Jesus Christ. The answer to our own idol-seeking hearts is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For the grace of God has appeared. It's true of our hearts, but it's true of others' hearts as well. Because Paul continues the verse writing, bringing salvation for all people. Everyone who responds to the grace of God through the person, in the person of Jesus Christ, can be saved. What a glorious truth! 
A race of people who from the beginning have rejected God's loving rule sent His Son to redeem us from our sin, from that rejection. And He has sent His Son that eventually all things will be set right. We have lived in rebellion for thousands upon thousands of years, and yet God sends His Son, Jesus Christ, grace and truth to redeem us from that rebellion. And we, as a people who have experienced that grace, have a responsibility, nay, a joy, to be able to proclaim that good news. So I want you to see Christmas truth, but I also want you this Christmas season to share Christmas truth. Share Christmas truth. Not only is the appearing of God's grace amazing, but the outwork of that coming of Jesus Christ is marvelous. It's bringing salvation for all people. So why we, like Paul, can say things like, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We can have that claim because we stand upon this truth. And what's amazing is there's no more silence. We're not like the Israelites who waited 400 years to hear a word from God. Because Hebrews 1.1 tells us long ago at many times, And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also He created all things. There is no more silence. We have God's voluminous grace on display for us, spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the message we know. It is the sure message of the grace that we see in Jesus Christ that we get to proclaim. Not have to, get to. We get to proclaim that truth as set free, as redeemed believers. As we we contemplate this Christmas season, we've kind of hung this, this title of Christmas clarity over the series. What's clear is Scripture reveals to us that the appearing of God's grace, the salvation that it brings for all who respond, is the most important thing in the world. It's the most important thing in the world. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is what's clear this Christmas. In a year, probably like unlike anything that any of us have ever experienced. In a year where maybe nothing seems clear. In a year where for you, and sometimes for me, frustration was the norm. In a year where maybe you even felt like God was silent. He speaks to us through the person of Jesus Christ. Revealed in His Word. And we get to speak to others about Jesus Christ. So this Christmas, we can choose to focus on what we don't know, or we can rest in what we do know. That grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Anxiety levels, doubts, and worries 
They may be on the rise right now. In your own hearts. Sometimes in my heart, if I'm honest. We need to meet those anxieties, those doubts, those worries with Christmas clarity. Be reminded that joy and hope and peace don't depend on our circumstances. Don't depend on elections. Don't depend on global pandemics. Don't depend on the economy. Don't depend on anything else. Our joy, our hope, our peace depend upon the fact that grace has appeared bringing salvation to all people. That's not to say that those things are are not important. But if you're more concerned with debating masks or not masks, if you're more interested in your political party's talking points, then you are captivated by the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ in making Him known, then I plead with you, I plead with me, let Christmas bring us clarity. The most important thing in the world is that the grace of God has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And I need, we need that Christmas clarity. We need, I need that Christmas mission. Salvation for all people. So how will we embrace it this Christmas? Will we insulate? Will we turn inward? Or will we look outward to Christ? and long to spread His sure joy with the world that grasps for joy and never finds it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's clear. Let's thank God for it. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You for the grace that we have in and through Him. We thank You that He redeems our sinful hearts. And I pray that we would live into that truth and that truth would live out of us to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends. We pray that this Christmas season will be a time when people turn to You. Help us be bold with Your Word for Your glory and Your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.